from PRX. Stew. Stew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I you mean, are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... You know, it's not easy to write this. Slash talked a lot about that with me, because Slash and I kind of came up together. You can stay in your mode, baby, and I do crazy things. Whatever it takes. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay sick. It was hard to stay upbeat in 2017, what with the mass shootings, weather mayhem, political ugliness, and revelations about men from Harvey Weinstein to Louis C.K. to Roy Moore behaving abominably. But work can be a haven. It certainly is for me, even though a lot of my work this last year has been talking about all that mayhem and ugliness. We're proud of a whole bunch of the work we've done at Studio 360 this year, so we decided to show off some of our favorite stories. This is the second of two episodes where we're highlighting those best of 2017 pieces. To start... There must be some kind of way out of here That's Jimi Hendrix, of course. He is a late 60s rock and roll pioneer and African-American. But what people tend to overlook about Jimi Hendrix is that he also strongly identified as Cherokee. Being part Native was very meaningful to my grandmother. That's Janie Hendrix, Jimi's sister. She talked about that a lot and really instilled that in all of us, but especially Jimi. It's really no wonder that the contributions of Native Americans to rock have gone unrecognized. After all, it isn't always obvious from some guitarist or drummer's appearance that he's Chippewa. And some musicians back in the day, worried about discrimination, did not exactly advertise their ancestry. But it turns out that, yes, Native American rock musicians have been influential musically and otherwise. That influence was the subject of an exhibit at the Smithsonian a few years ago, and is now the subject of a really illuminating documentary called Rumble, The Indians Who Rocked the World. The film was produced by Stevie Salas, a guitarist who's performed with Rod Stewart and Mick Jagger and George Clinton and lots more, and who is Apache. Stevie and I talked about his film and the music that inspired it. Well, really, you know, it's been in the works for most of my life. But what happened was, first, it was just curiosity. I I grew up on the beach in San Diego. My my father left Wyoming, and my mother's family had left New Mexico, and and I never really saw myself as different. Uh, And I moved to L.A. in 1985 after high school, and I I got a huge gig playing with Rod Stewart. But I would notice that there's just not too many people that look like me. I'd be on tour, and... I'd be in this, I was in this massive band, you know, playing, you know, five nights at Madison Square Gardens or whatever. And I, but I just didn't see anybody look like me. I just started getting curious. That's also, I started to do a little digging on the subject back then and where people were from. I, I want to ask you about this film's director, who is an Anglo woman from Canada named uh, Catherine Bainbridge, all of whose work seems to be movies and TV shows about Native people. So tell me about her. Why is that her her professional mission? Well, well, it's because she's married to a Cree man 
from way up in Chisassabee near the Hudson Bay, and her children are Native children. And she's really passionate about the history, and, and uh, she's really, really good with that stuff. Well, one great thing about this film is that there are obviously gigantic musicians like Jimi Hendrix that one has knew and has heard of. Uh, but some people, a lot of people, a shockingly lot of people who were big deals whom I'd never heard of and were influential. Um, like, let's start, for instance, with your, one of your favorites, a guy you mentioned, Link Ray. Here's maybe his most famous track. That was Rumble by Link Ray and his Ray Man in 1957. Uh, so what do you what do you love about that? Well, you know what's really a trip about that is it's the song that first invented really the distorted power chord. Nineteen fifty-seven, you know, you you got this distorted thing coming out of the guitar um, that Pete Townsend is freaking out. That Jeff Beck told me him and Jimmy Page would play air guitar to that song and uh, so it influenced everybody that influenced me and Slash talked a lot about that with me because Slash and I kind of came up together and uh, you know all of us guys we listen to Townsend Dave Davies we all listen to, to Jimmy Page we all listen to Jeff Beck and Clapton I mean those are the guys and then he says I was wondering one day who did they listen to? And he said the more he dug uh, the name that always came up was Link Ray and and you realize that this is a massively unsung yes. person yeah, and no, and you know, okay, we know Chuck Berry. We know we know some of the farthest, deepest godfathers of rock and roll. But this, to me, it's like, whoa, this is the moment rock is being invented, and this just sounds so uh, hard and 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 unwatered down and cool. And it just it was amazing to discover who did this. And that song with no lyrics was banned from radio because it was inciting teen violence, and it's not even any lyrics, right? Right. So he's touching a nerve big time, right? So he he influences, you know, the, the people that are the Mount Rushmore of rock, the Townsend, Page, Beck. You know, he, he gets the big guys. There, and now they go on, and Link Ray sort of goes off into obscurity to the public. So did he kind of, he influenced you kind of second and third hand through the Jeff Becks and, and, and yes. so forth? Yeah. Like most people my age, uh, we didn't even realize, you know, same with Jesse Ed Davis. We didn't realize we were getting influenced by these guys because— we had to go back and search who they influenced, and that's when we realized how important they were. Um, Jesse Ed Davis is a guitarist I'd heard of from liner notes growing up. I had no idea who he was, but I, I, the name is familiar because he was on Beatles albums and Eric Clapton albums and Jackson, Jackson Brown albums and so many others. Uh, here is one of the extremely well-known tracks he played on. Whatever gets you through the That is, of course, Whatever Gets You Through the Night uh, by John Lennon uh, with Elton John uh, and Jesse Ed Davis on guitar. Tell the okay. listeners a little something about Jesse Ed. Well, I was exactly like you, okay? So I used to, you know, I remember uh, the Atlantic Crossing album by Rod Stewart came out, I think, when I was in fifth grade or sixth grade or something like that. And I remember reading the liner notes, and I'd see this song written by Jesse Ed Davis, Jesse Ed Davis on guitar. I'd see that name everywhere, having no idea he was a Native American man. Um, I then later on would join Rod Stewart's band as my first big band. I would My first band really joined since high school. And um, I would learn Jesse Ed Davis guitar parts, not realizing I was learning guitar parts by a 
Native American man. Uh-huh. Here, while I'm on tour with Rod Stewart, searching for Native American musicians, uh-huh. I'm playing some of his guitar parts, not knowing he's a Native American musician. Uh, and then later on, went, you know, we started getting into it. We started to find out, you know, Brad Whitford from Aerosmith goes, you know, I love Jesse Ed Davis. And he's, you know, and I see he would dress like an Indian, but I thought he just dressed like that because he looked cool. I didn't realize he was an actual Native American, you know, which was great. And then Jackson Brown said, yeah, it was, you know, everybody dressed like an Indian then. It was the cool thing to do. Yeah. So you didn't know if he was actually really one, right? And um, And now when I watch... The Bangladesh footage with Clapton and George Harrison. The the 1971 concert for Bangladesh, yeah. the big benefit. Um, and there he is right there. It's got Clapton on one side and it's got Jesse on his left. And, and you know, Jesse was a big, big man. So you got this big, gigantic Native American man standing right next to Clapton and right next to George Harrison. And I'm thinking, how did I not look at that footage my whole life and go, who's that Indian on the stage there? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's like so obvious now that you know. Yes. Well, which is my experience of watching this film in general. It's like, wait, this stuff I've been looking at my entire life, suddenly now, wait, all of these Native Americans stepped out of the shadows. that were, yeah. And they were just, we were looking at them all the time. Yeah, they were right there in plain sight. You know, it's funny, David Frick is our musicologist, right, for um, for the movie. He was, he was a Rolling Stone every- writer, right? He's the yeah, senior editor at Rolling Stone yeah. or, or something like that. He knew everything about this. It was like, yeah. like it was like, oh, yeah. It's like, why didn't anybody tell anybody? Yeah. Our, our next track is a guy who might vaguely heard of because I know what I know about the blues. Uh, this is uh, Charlie Patton. It is my pony. That's Charlie Patton playing Pony Blues in 1929, which sounds pretty classic African-American blues to me. But but uh, tell me about Charlie Patton and what well, you hear there, you know? Well, what you just said is funny, right? Because it's true. We are all brought up to believe that, that was the blues was a black art form. And it wasn't until we started to dig in there, you know, Billy Gibbons said to me one day, you know, uh, Charlie Patton, if you look at him closely, he had some curly, wavy blonde hair. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, and then we started to find those quotes, like from Howlin' Wolf. And those people saying, right. man, this Native, this, this Native American guy taught me how to play guitar. And um, you started to realize that what was really going on was the birth of our nation, uh, a music being a byproduct of it, was all these cultures being mixed up. And that's what created the sound and the feeling and the, and the sort of what our country turned into, North America, Canada included. Well, and there's, there's a great scene in the film that is, was, to me, musically revelatory, where you have these Native women in the South doing, singing their Native songs, which sound... And you, you suddenly, watching that, you suddenly get, oh, I get this connection to the blues. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I mean, if I didn't know what the story was, I would just assume they were singing the blues. Yeah. It was a black, that black art form. But what we're, really, what we're really trying to say is that it isn't really just a black art form. It is a black art form and native art form and many other cultures that created that. Um, where, so we're not saying the Indians did it and the black people didn't or whatever. It's, it's all of it together, like, the, like a gumbo, like Ivan Neville says in the film. To me, I think of, of gumbo which is the 
quintessential New Orleans food. When I was growing up, gumbo was you put everything you had in a pot. All that stuff together makes this great meal. I'm part Native American, part African by way of Haiti, part French, part Italian. And that's kind of what New Orleans is. And it comes out so flavorful. Another thing, when you're talking about the, the connections between Native music and the blues, is, is how the, the, the playing the guitar like a drum, which, which, again, I never thought of. That's an interesting connection as well. I never thought of that either, man. Catherine really, really found that stuff and pulled it out and, and enlightened me as well because I never really realized that, you know, because when, when they played, they didn't have the band, right? So the, the, the beat on the guitar would be your drum beat, and you'd have your, your four on the floor as like your, your powwow your powwow beat, then you'd have your polyrhythms, your African polyrhythms mixed in there. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, now it's the sound of the blues, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, Robbie Robertson, uh, who has been one of my favorite musicians since I was a teenager and first heard the band and bought every record they ever made, uh, talk about him. He he is he's a big figure in this film. He's really the holy grail, isn't he? I mean, if you think about Robbie, Robbie Robertson has the muscle as a Native American man to do pretty much what he wants, and he has the the cachet. And he was super important because if he wouldn't have been in the Smithsonian exhibit, it just wouldn't have worked because. You know, there's always these people that are going to say, like, well, I never heard of Jesse Davis or Link Ray. Come on, you're, 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 you guys are just fishing. But when you, you there's nobody's questioning Robbie Robertson. Right. They all, he is beyond a legend. You know, Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters said, you know, Robbie Robertson, everybody wants to be, I want to play in the band, you know. Yeah. Um, th- so he is super important for this film because he really brought the anchor of credibility. As you were making this documentary, did you think, okay, this is how I want. Uh, non-native audiences, which will obviously be most of your audience, to to see this and come away thinking about it this way. And this is what I want, uh, what what I want native people to to see in this film and feel about this film. Once I turned forty, I said, "Okay, I've spent the first half of my life really being selfish and you know trying to be rich and trying to be famous and all this stuff, which was really fun. I loved it. <laughs> I've had I've had some great times, um, but." I wanted to go back to Indian country and I wanted to try to help because I'd see people beating their heads against the wall. And um, one of the things I realized was they didn't have a lot of role models. You know, there's not a lot of role models in, in, in Indian country other than, you know, history, you know, Geronimo and... Yeah, Sitting Bull. Thing, yeah. yeah. And so I knew that these musicians would prove that, look, anything is possible. These guys did it, and especially in times where you could get killed for it, right? And... Um, I wanted them to have some role models. I wanted us to have role models that were you know, represented, that were, there was somebody you could be proud of. But then what happened was once Catherine started digging deeper into the history and even the Smithsonian, big time in the Smithsonian, actually, I should say, uh, we started to realize that we were unearthing some history, American history, that had never been told, that never was known. We knew the black story with rock and Robert Johnson and Little Richard. We knew the white story with rock and roll when, when Elvis popped and then the Beatles. And, but there was a red story we never knew about. And... And now it's out, and that's something I'm the most proud of, that the film has really rewritten some wrongs. And, and, and we're, not saying, we're not saying, we did this, you didn't do this. We're just saying, these guys did this, and it's, and it's important. Right. And, and it, it should be recognized, and it will be recognized from now on. And if, that, if I die, and that's what the film did, then I'm good with that. 
Well, Stevie Salas, you really have. And congratulations for educating me and entertaining me and uh, I think a lot of all the people who see this film as well. So thank you. Thank you. Rumble, The Indians Who Rock the World, came out over the summer and is now available on iTunes and Amazon. You can find a Spotify playlist of the music you heard in this piece at our website, pri.org slash studio360. Fifteen years ago, Lisa Lefty Lopez, the L in the huge group TLC, died at age 30. As part of TLC, she helped make memorable songs like... And this. And this. One TLC fan was a girl in Jackson, Mississippi named Angie Thomas. I had these two friends in middle school, and the three of us pretended we were TLC all the time. So I was always left eye, and they were T-Boz and Chili, and we would practice TLC songs in my driveway. We would um, play the songs maybe on a little Walkman, even though it had headphones. You could try to turn the volume all the way up so you could still hear it, and we would try to do the songs and the raps and everything and do our own little dances that they would do in the videos. But on the last day of sixth grade, my school decided to announce the students with the highest GPA. And I was a sixth grader, but I had the highest GPA in the entire school, more so than the seventh and eighth graders. And the teachers made the seventh graders feel kind of bad that a sixth grader had a higher GPA than them. So I guess they remembered that over the summer (laughs) because on my first day of seventh grade, The eighth graders just harassed me. I couldn't go down the hall without one of them pushing me or making a comment about me. They were calling me fatty. Um, They would push me. They would try to trip me, all kind of stuff. I remember looking for those friends that I just had in sixth grade that I was, you know, imitating TLC with, and they were silent. And I get it now because when you're that age, your first instinct is to protect yourself and not stick up for your friend. But I wished that they would stick up for me and they didn't. So I remember going home and just, I was done. I was done. My mom, I love my mom to death. And she did so much for me and for my grandmother. She took care of my grandmother full-time as a caregiver because my grandmother ended up having dementia. And then us struggling financially, not having a car, you know, having to ask neighbors to take us to the grocery store and stuff like that. It was hard. And for some reason, I thought that the best way to help my mom was if she didn't have to take care of me. I thought that that was the best thing um, if I just got out of the way. I had a moment where I just decided I was going to do it, and I locked myself in the bathroom, and I was going to take some pain medicine. I, for some reason, took my little walk, my little CD player into the restroom with me, and I just sat on the floor, and I cried. 
And my mom was outside of the bathroom telling me, just come out, please, don't you know. She's trying to talk me down. She didn't know that I was trying to take pills or anything like that. But she was trying to just get me to come out to talk to her. And I wanted to drown her out. So I put my headphones on and I pushed play on the CD player. And Waterfalls came on. In that moment, I decided to really listen to the song. As much as I enjoyed the song, I decided to really listen to it and really listen to Lisa's rap. She ended the rap with saying, dreams are hopeless aspirations and hopes are coming true. Believe in yourself, the rest is up to me. Believe in yourself, the rest is up to me and you. And I remember listening to those lyrics and it spoke to me in such a way that I decided... No, I'm not going to take these pills. I'm going to get up and I'm going to fight. I'm going to keep going because there's a rainbow on the other side of this. I turned the CD off and I took my headphones off and I went out of the bathroom and I apologized to my mom because I knew I scared her. And I told her I was like, this song, I told her about the song. I said, this song just really changed me just now. Well, I started listening to him myself. My name is Julia Williams-Thomas, and I'm Angie's mom. I thought about what Angie was going, had been going through, and I thought, oh, if I could just get Lisa to talk to Angie, maybe, maybe that would cheer her up. I called recording studios, record label companies, I called everybody and anybody I could think of to try. And I had some other co-workers and other parents say, girl, you crazy. I wouldn't be trying to call that woman. Uh, well, you can stay in your mode, baby, and I do crazy things, whatever it takes. And so I found the name of her studio that she had, had at that time, not realizing that was located at her house. So when I called, <laughs> there was this young lady on the phone answered, and I told her who I was and that my daughter was crazy about Lisa and how Lisa had really made an impact on my child's life. And I was like, if she could just say hello. And the next voice I heard was Lisa Left Eye Lopez. I was in another room. And my mom was talking to Left Eye from TLC on the phone and explaining to her everything. And my mom comes in the room where I am. I was watching television. My mom muted the television. She said, someone wants to speak to you. So I took the phone and I say, hello. And she goes, hey, this is Left Eye. I dropped the phone. (laughs) I dropped the phone. And so when I got on the phone, she said, are you okay? And I said, yes, ma'am. And then she was like, oh, you said (laughs) ma'am. I don't think she was used to kids saying ma'am to her. So I'm Southern. I couldn't help it. And we were just talking and she she, kind of eased into it. You know, it wasn't a thing of from jump, let me 
talk her off the ledge. You know, it was like, let me ease my way into it. So she told me, you know, your mom told me you've been going through some stuff. And she was like, I'm sorry that you, you know, feel like you have to end it, but don't. And she said, you know, you have so much to fight for. You've got your mom, you've got your grandmother, you've got so many things that you can do in your life one day. She said, don't take your life. She was a simple with it, you know, don't do it. And I used to wish that my life would end. You know, my mom would look at me and say, oh, I'm so, I'm so sad to hear you say that. And if you don't know what it feels like to be happy, you don't know what you don't know, you know, so it's, it's like there's no hope. But um, doesn't really have to be that way, so. She said, I'm talking from experience, and it may seem like it's hard right now, but I promise it will get better. I remember just, I was, I was just more so stunned that it was left eye talking to me, but still it's, it hit me, and I was like, yes, ma'am, you know. <laughs> Lisa said some things to her that really encouraged her in a way like I could never have done myself. At least I felt like I couldn't have. But it made a difference. It made an impact. And it, it stirred my daughter and encouraged her in a way, honey, that it's like whatever I'm going through this and I'm coming out of this. TLC was the biggest girl group ever. At that time, they were, like, humongous. So the fact that my mom was able to find the number, the fact that we were able to get her on the phone, it showed me, okay, anything can happen. If that can happen, anything can happen for sure. That actually makes me choke up every time I listen to it. Angie Thomas is the author of The Hate You Give, her debut novel, which appeared on the New York Times YA bestseller list in 2017 at number one. Daniel Gamet produced that story. Studio 360. Today on the show, we're bringing you our choices of some of our favorite stories we produced during 2017. This next one's a bit PG, so parents of young kids, consider yourself warned. Back in the 1960s, as the sexual revolution ramped up, a lot of Americans also started going for more frank depictions of sex, especially in fiction, in novels. The legal ban on sexually explicit books, like Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, ended in 1964. Soon, other A-list literary writers like John Updike were going there. But even more, publishers of very commercial fiction cranked up the new smut machine and churned out trashy sexual romps that became huge bestsellers, such as Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Suzanne. She felt herself responding to his embrace with an ardor she had never dreamed she possessed, her mouth demanding more and more. And The Adventurers by Harold Robbins. Her mouth was warm and moist and still tasted of orange soda. And his lips were traveling down her body, over her breasts. Which was great if you were 11 or 12 and finding these paperbacks on your parents' bedside tables. But the literary mandarins were appalled. 
1966, Lewis Nichols, uh, writing in the New York Times about that year's bestsellers, said that, quote, seldom has there been so wretched a collection of titles as appears today. But the greatest example of wretched erotica, truly laughably bad, came along a couple of years later. And how it came along is itself like a comic novel. Studio 360 Sam Kim has the story. It all started in 1966 in this bar in Garden City, Long Island called The Sulky. Which was a place where you could listen to music, have a drink, dance. That's Marilyn Berger. She was the diplomatic correspondent at Newsday, the daily newspaper of Long Island. Back then, many of her co-workers would retire each night to the Sulky, including a 33-year-old columnist named Mike McGrady. Gin mills that year were filled with writers anesthetizing themselves against the harsh new realities of their profession. McGrady died in 2012. In 1970, he wrote a memoir about this period, read here by actor Greg Tannen. To be a serious writer in the year 1966 was also to be a serious drinker. They had a piano bar, you know, and there were some attractive women who hung out there. That's Harvey Aronson. He was a columnist at Newsday. I remember once I drank champagne out of a secretary's shoe and um, told everybody that I was getting um, athlete's foot of the mouth. And they'd be up drinking in this place. George Vesey was Newsday's sports reporter. And then people would talk, and all the, the hair was let down. And uh, They were discussing the, the status of American literature. That's Tony Insolia. He was the editor for Newsday for over 30 years. Stanley Green was the day news editor. Mike used to complain about uh, books like uh, Harold Robbins and uh, Jackie Suzanne. I was appalled by the kind of books making enormous successes. Look at the garbage that gets printed. That's when the idea hit him. McGrady thought Suzanne's and Robbins' books were schlock, but they were selling millions of copies. So what if you actually tried to write a preposterously bad erotic novel? Would it be just as successful? Everyone at Newsday could do one chapter. We would each write about one specific perversion, and we put them all together. We could write the whole thing in a week. And what came out of it was a a plan for writing the worst bestseller in the world. (laughs) He said, we'll make a lot of money. I said, we're not going to make any money. But I thought we'd have a lot of fun. So McGrady got home from the bar that night poured himself a nightcap, and typed a memo to his co-workers. You are hereby officially invited to become the co-author of a best-selling novel. There will be an unremitting emphasis on sex. Also, true excellence in writing will be quickly blue-penciled into oblivion. He then typed out a plot outline that would connect all the disparate sex scenes. Each chapter will involve Miss Jillian Blake, homewrecker. As the book opens, she learns that her husband, William, has been conducting an affair. She is unfaithful at first to even the score. She is unfaithful for a while because she enjoys it. She is unfaithful finally because she makes it a goal to destroy the seemingly happy marriages that surround her. The next day, McGrady circulated the memo in the Newsday office. I came in late at night and I found a note in my mailbox. George Vesey took the memo home. He decided to write his chapter while he was supposed to be doing yard work. So, yeah, mowers would have been on my mind. And I, uh, you know, I typed it out in half an hour. 
Morton Earbrow found himself staring, staring hard at her slim, exciting face, then staring hard at her slim, exciting body. Her arms were slim and exciting, too. The mower is in the garage, she said. She had removed the belt to his Bermuda shorts, and then, without words, they merged. In the dark, in the cool darkness, they communicated. I remember using the word communicated a lot, which is kind of a stupid word for, for making love, but that's, that's what I was up to. Faster and faster they communicated, harder and harder. Fingers and nails on skin, teeth on skin, then great shudders of total communication. They came apart and rested in the dark. He said, I'd forgotten there was more to life than mowing the lawn. Three weeks later, a total of 24 Newsday writers, 20 men and four women, sent in a chapter. A few of the submissions were poetic, sophisticated, intelligent. In other words, unacceptable. Some of the chapters were much too good, and I had to work like hell to make them bad enough to use. You know, it's not easy to write bad. McGrady enlisted one of the writers, Harvey Aronson, to share editing duties. To really write bad is hard, and some of it was just moderately stupid. Together, they downgraded the prose, combined some of the chapters, cut a few submissions, and one chapter that got the axe was Marilyn Berger's. I didn't make the cut, and my sister said, well, it was obviously too well written, and my mother said it wasn't sexy enough. I think that may be the first time I heard my mother say sexy. A couple days before I talked to Marilyn, I went to the archives at Columbia University. That's where Mike McGrady donated many of the documents from his career. I made copies of some of the unused chapters from the book. Do you still have your chapter, by the way? No, I was going to ask you if you had it. You know what? I have uh, some of it. Can I see it? So I handed her a copy. And for the first time in over 50 years, she read her submission that was cut from the manuscript. She pressed her body against his, kissing first his fingers, then his arm, his chest, his mouth. They orchestrated a rhythm that he had once said was composed of everything they both had ever known, of surf and swaying trees, of crowded traffic and musty rooms, of sweet flowers and moonlight, of life itself. (laughs) What did you think when you read that? I'm amazed. Yeah. I was pretty... No, I wasn't so naive then. I was just sort of younger. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember a word of it. And I am so happy you've come up with a copy. Meanwhile, for the submissions that did make the cut, Mike and Harvey were working to cobble them together to make them seem like they were all written by one person. So Mike invented a collective pseudonym for all the writers. Penelope Ash. Penelope Ash, as he described to his co-conspirators, was a demure Long Island housewife. And for the title, the Newsday writers scanned through a list of bestsellers and found that the words stranger and naked were frequently used. So they combined the two together to create the title for their opus. Naked came the stranger. There were 14 chapters in the manuscript. One was by a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, Robert Greene. She stepped out of the dress. She was wearing no bra, pink white peaks rising from the residue of her tan. Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Jean Golds. 
and they reached for each other and found pleasure in gentle caresses. Then faster, quicker, faster, needful, Willoughby was lost in immense billowy softness and riotous colors and roaring winds. He was the sand and the sea and the star-pierced sky. When I asked the writers to name their favorite chapter in the book, it was unanimous. I think that John Cummings' chapter is the funniest. John Cummings, who died in 2016, was an investigative reporter at Newsday. He claimed that when he was a young man in the Marines, he had an adventure with a woman in the Philippines who was a hooker, and that at the climactic moment of their involvement, pressed an ice cube up his rear end. (laughs) And he wrote this line, which is in the book, you can find it exactly. And then Ernie felt it. She shoved the ice in, the big rock candy mountain. Together, like garden snakes, they contorted, moaned, gasped, clenched, and throbbed. Ernie found what Cervantes and Milton had only sought. He thought the fillings in his teeth would melt. The imagery was absurd. The perversions were plentiful. It was then that I began to sense that it was going to work. It was actually going to work. It's true. They did succeed in the first part of their plan. They wrote a genuinely terrible novel. But what self-respecting book publisher would actually publish this? I'm a book publisher and proud of it. Yeah, I influenced an entire generation. That's Lyle Stewart speaking in 2005. In the late 60s, he was known for publishing controversial, sexually explicit books like The Art of Erotic Seduction. Mike had previously written about him for a Newsday article. He broached the idea to Lyle Stewart. When Mike told him it was going to be put on, he thought that was great. So we needed somebody to front for the book. There was the name, Penelope Ash. We needed a woman who might fit the name. They decided on Mike's sister-in-law, a 38-year-old writer named Billy Young. After weeks of trying to track her down... Hello? Hi, Billy. How are you? She agreed to talk on the phone. Well, actually, Mike had talked to me about it uh, for a while, and I thought it was one of the most beautiful plans I'd ever heard because I was always impressed with what Orson Welles had done with War of the Worlds, and this was just as good a spoof in my mind. So she went to Lyle Stewart, and he loved her. He thought she'd be great as a front for the book. So that was it, and he said he would publish it. So... Three years after it was just an offhand comment at the sulky bar, the book was finally published. For the cover, Lyle Stewart used this stock photo of a kneeling naked woman. And for the author photo, they used a picture of Billy Young. The plan was for Billy to appear on television and radio posing as Penelope Ash. But before she did, Mike and Harvey prepped her for the interviews. So we went to Billy's home. And she said, you know, what should she do? What can she say? And I remember saying to her, tell them that virginity is like a Tiffany lamp. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, I don't have the faintest idea, but it sounds great. I went into um, Neiman Marcus and I bought a couple of very sexy outfits. And it was, you know, a little more flamboyant than I would personally wear. But it, but it was for a role, and that's what I wore to be in interviews. Penelope Ash, the author. I think this is what the public is buying today, sex. 
couple months later, I'm on my patio. I hear her being interviewed on a radio show. Oh, well, you know, virginity is like a Tiffany lamp. I just laid on the ground on the stone patio and just beat my hand on the ground. I knew I could carry it off. But when it came to fruition, the only emotion that I could tell you that I felt, scared. And it was frightening that the whole world knew me now. In those years, I was pretty shy. And that was what cured me. You take the shyest person and you do that a couple of times and the shyness can be cured. I'm a living example. Across the country, the book sold between 20 and 30,000 copies so far. And they're still going in some areas like hotcakes. Uh, the New York Times printed a uh, one-paragraph dismissive review, unaware that it was a spoof. It would be nice if this book could be judged by its cover, which is easily the best part. In the category of erotic fantasy, this one rates about a C. So the hoax seemed to be fooling everyone, and McGrady and the other writers were in no hurry to disabuse the notion that Penelope Ash and the book were real. But then... Somebody... Uh, tipped off uh, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And so they were asked, please keep it secret because we wanted to see how high it would go. Robert Mayer was a columnist at Newsday. He co-wrote one of the chapters. The Wall Street Journal was adamant. They said they weren't going to hold it. They knew enough about it to go with the story. And right after that, all over the world. I mean, it was insane. Newspapers all across the United States jumped on it. It just went wild. Back in 1966, here at the offices of Newsday, 25 young writers got together and perpetrated a gigantic hoax. Naked Came the Stranger was supposed to have been written by a first-time authorist trying her best. Instead, it turns out it was written by a bunch of other people trying to do their worst. I was sent off to Paris to cover the Vietnam peace talks, and I opened up the International Herald Tribune while I was waiting for the press conference to begin, and there it was. Naked Came the Stranger the spoof of the century. Walter Cronkite sent a uh, helicopter that landed on the lawn across the street from uh, Newsday's office. And Mike and I and a friend named Lou Schwartz were in the helicopter. I don't know how Lou got in there, but he was in the helicopter with us and they flew us to New York. A new novel about sex in suburbia was published this week. It seems to be on the way to becoming another instant bestseller. But it is not all it seems to be. As it says, Jacqueline, Suzanne, move over. you got to move way over to make room for 24 men. And that's the way it is, Wednesday, August 6, 1969. And I remember looking down at New York City, and Lou Schwartz said, it's all yours. The city is all yours. <laughs> And on September 1969, the real Penelope Ash made her first national televised appearance on The David Frost Show. Will you now meet the authoress of Naked Came the Stranger, Penelope Ash? They parted the drapes and one after another. I think about 19 of us were there. Uh, we walked through as the author, Penelope Ash. That was, was a fun, fun night. We got a lot of applause, and Billy came in wandering around the stage with her Russian wolfhound. Why did I bring the dog? I don't have an idea. Maybe I took her because I was so, too scared. David Frost told us afterwards 
that he was scared um, shitless uh, that the wolfhound was going to have an accident during the program. A month later, the book had sold over 90,000 copies. It gradually crept up the New York Times bestseller list, reaching number three, just behind The Love Machine by none other than Jacqueline Suzanne. In other words, the book that was parodying Suzanne was now rivaling her in sales. Mike and Harvey soon got a call. It was Bernard Geis, the man who published Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. He called us to his office. He said, you guys write a sequel. You're going to make a million dollars. And Mike and I looked at each other, and we both said no. We did it once. I wasn't going to wasn't going to do it again. Harvey left Newsday to write for New York Magazine. He's proud of his role in Naked Came to Stranger, but not without reservations. I hope that when I go to the great beyond, that is not the defining clause in the first um, paragraph. I mean, it can be in the it can be in the obit, but I don't want it in the first paragraph. Robert Mayer was just as conflicted. After all, the hoax had proved that the standards of readers were even lower than what Mike had cynically predicted. I didn't know whether I should laugh or cry. The laugh that that we had pulled off that this hoax had worked great, but also to uh, to cry at the uh, taste of America that we had exposed. It was a feeling we all shared from time to time. This was how Mike McGrady ended his 1970 memoir. The fun seemed to vanish. Even with the first wild thought that the stunt might work, there was the fear that, yes, the stunt just might work. Later, as it all came to pass, there were always counter-emotions, unexpected misgivings that took the edge off elation. It was too easy. It all went too smoothly. America. You sit there, you plump beauty, still buying neckties from sidewalk sharpies, still guessing which walnut shell contains the pea, still praying along with Elmer Gantry. America, sometimes I worry about you. Gotta get off, gonna get off from this That story was produced by Studio 360 Sam Kim. Since we first aired it, Stan Green has died. Greg Tannen read from Mike McGrady's memoir, Stranger Than Naked, and Lorraine Maddox read the excerpts from Naked Came the Stranger. He thought the fillings in his teeth would melt. <laughs> Whew. It's hot in here. You can learn lots of other fascinating things about the making of that novel at our website, PRI.org slash Studio 360, including the story of how the spoof was adapted into an actual porn movie. Ernie, I've been a very naughty little girl, and I need to be punished. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Zoe Saunders. Sam Kim. Lauren Hansen. Tommy Bazarian. And I'm Kurt Anderson. He really brought the anchor of credibility. Thank you very much for listening. 
You have one unheard message. First unheard message sent yesterday. Small correction. Last week, when I was talking to Alexander Payne, I referred to the fictional character Becky Sharp. I placed her, unfortunately, in Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, rather than where she belongs in William Makepeace Thackeray's Vanity Fair. End of message. To delete this message, press 7. PRI Public Radio International Next time on Studio 360, it was a novelty song about truckers that was a huge hit and made the 1970s CB radio craze even crazier. How gas shortages drove a couple of ad men to write Convoy. Next time on Studio 360. It was the dark of the moon on the 6th of June in a kin.